All right, our second reading is from Acts chapter 23, verses 20 through 35. I won't make you stand. You can relax. This is also in your bulletin. Hear the word of God. He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please open our ears to hear your word, open our minds to understand your word, open our hearts to receive your word, and bless our hands and feet to do your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, reading Acts, it's easy to think that Paul is a troublemaker. Before his conversion, he was the one causing trouble. After his conversion, well, it's still Paul causing trouble. But as John Lewis would say, it's good trouble. Reading his exploits is like watching a TV series called Paul the Troublemaker. We could call this episode, 40 Zealots versus a Mystery Nephew. In this brief passage, we see aggressive resistance to the gospel, how God used Paul in unlikely ways, Paul being encouraged, the Holy Spirit at work behind the scenes, and the reality that God's plans will always succeed. So let's recap what's happening. Paul is in Jerusalem and has been brought before the Sanhedrin. This is a sort of local religious supreme court. He's there because he's viewed as a threat to the religious establishment, pretty much the same way Jesus was. This gospel Paul is preaching is radical stuff, and it's having a significant impact. But if one examines the impact closely, the results are all positive. 
People's lives are transformed for the better. They are more honest, hardworking, diligent in caring for their neighbors, sharing what they have with others who are in need. All good things. Still, the Sadducees and Pharisees are outraged. Why? Because it shifts the power from them to the God they claim to serve. And the situation is intense. Look at the language in verses 9 and 10. There was a great uproar. They were arguing vigorously. The dispute became violent. Paul was at risk of being torn to pieces. It was such a ruckus that the Roman commander had to step in and use force to extricate Paul. The day before, you can read in chapter 22, these people had become so riled up, they were tearing off their clothes, throwing dust in the air, and threatening Paul's life. Clearly, in this court, there was no order. The story moves quickly from there and is is as exciting as any TV drama. The next night, after things calm down, Paul is visited by Jesus and given a glimpse of what's coming next for him. Then a plot is hatched to assassinate him. But a relative, his nephew, learns of the plot and warns him. A counter plan is developed on the spot to spirit Paul out of town under the cover of darkness. In just a couple of days, he ends up 60 miles away, protected by the Romans in a safe house in Caesarea. Wow, what a wild ride for Paul. And that's where this cliffhanger of a story ends for now. Tune in next week for the rest. Okay, let's take a deeper look at some of the scenes from this episode. This rowdiness isn't exactly a new experience for Paul. Before his conversion, he was an intense, devout Jew on a mission to stamp out this upstart threat called, eventually, Christianity. He was the one who threatened the lives of those he opposed. In Acts 8.3, it states, Paul, but Saul, Paul's name before conversion, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then in Acts 9-1, he's described as breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This Saul Paul was not a nice guy, at least not to those who were followers of Jesus. Now, on the flip side of the Damascus Road experience, where he was blinded by the light and confronted by Christ, now Paul is feeling the wrath that he once was the instigator of. He understands full well the consequences of his actions. Just as he once hunted and persecuted Christians, he's now the one in the crosshairs being hunted. It's a little ironic, yet it's a clear example of how God uses us, just as we are, with the personality he gave us for his glory. But first, he has to redeem us. And turn us in the right direction. So Paul, previously a bulldog for the religion of the day, is now a bulldog for the risen Savior. Same guy, just with a redeemed and retooled purpose. So here's Paul, pulled from the fray and placed in protective custody, if you will. It's the night after and all is calm and quiet. Then Jesus appears. This is not a dream or a vision. Earlier, again at night in Acts 18, 19, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. 
Later in Acts 22, 17 through 18, Paul recounts how sometime earlier he was praying at the temple and fell into a trance. And he heard Jesus tell him, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. But this time, in chapter 23, Jesus actually appears to Paul and stands near Paul. I love that description. He's standing beside Paul close to him, and says, take courage. Take courage in the Greek is actually a single word, tharseo. In the New Testament, only Jesus uses this specific word and only a handful of times. For example, in Matthew 9.22, after the woman with an issue of blood touched his garment and was healed, Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, tharseo, your faith has healed you. In Mark 6.50, when walking on the water toward his terrified disciples, he said, Take courage, Tharseo, it is I, don't be afraid. In John 16.33, concluding a discourse of comfort and clarifications for his disciples, he wraps up saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, Tharseo. I have overcome the world. Something similar happened to Joshua on the night before he marched on Jericho. I imagine Joshua going off by himself to think when in Joshua 5 we read, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but... As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I believe this event is what's called a theophany, and this was the pre-incarnate Jesus. His reassuring message to Joshua is simple, yet powerful. I have now come. Back to Paul. After this nighttime encounter with Christ, the day breaks and the intrigue mounts. Instead of facing the wrath of a handful of stuffy religious leaders, he's now the target of a band of 40-plus assassins. These were likely a sort of unofficial religious militia called zealots. They conspire, scheme, and plot to take Paul out or die trying. When it comes to spreading the gospel, resistance is inevitable. What's remarkable is that these are devout Christians, or devout Jews rather, that claim to be stringent observers of the law. And yet, they are intent on breaking at least two commandments. Don't murder, and don't give false test- false witness. They know the law, and yet their hearts are possessed by hatred. Jesus calls other of their ilk a viper's brood, children of Satan. But Jesus has now come, and he has other plans for Paul. He sends Paul's nephew to the rescue. Now, in writing, there's a literary device called deus ex machina. When a writer has written himself into a corner, say the main character is locked in a room with no obvious means of escape, this is a tool the writer used to save the day. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a key turns up that unlocks the tamper-resistant lock, and he's free. Or, in old westerns, when the heroes are pinned down in a gunfight with the bad guys, 
without being summoned, the cavalry comes over the hillside to the rescue. It's the sudden appearance of an unexpected and often unlikely situation to an other otherwise impossible situation. Unlikely solution, sorry. Kind of like every episode of MacGyver. That guy can do anything out of Anyway, in Paul's story, up pops a nephew, a person no one anticipated to save the day. This passage is the only reference in the Bible that mentions Paul's family. We don't know whose Paul's parents were. We don't know for sure if he was married or not. There's a lot of speculation. But all of a sudden we learn he has at least one sister and one nephew. And we don't know anything about them, except that the nephew was in Jerusalem and somehow got wind of the plot against Paul. The exact mechanic, mechanic, excuse me, the exact mechanics of how this came about, we do not know. But clearly, the Holy Spirit was at work behind the scenes. The boy discovers the plot and brings the information to his uncle Paul. Now, it was normal for prisoners at the time to be fed by their family. So that's probably how he gained access easily to Paul. He comes to Paul, tells him about the plot. Paul sends him to the commander. The boy tells him about the plot. And the commander believes him and takes immediate action. Suddenly, the 40-plus assassins are confounded by a force of at least 470 armed guards. There's no way they're going to touch Paul. When God has a plan, nothing and no one can thwart it. Now, when reading this, it immediately reminded me of Esther. If you have never read the book of Esther, please read it this week. One of the intriguing features of the book of Esther is that God is never overtly mentioned. Yet, God's hand can clearly be seen at work in the life of Esther and her uncle Mordecai. In the story, Mordecai overhears a plot of two guards to kill the king who has taken Esther as his wife. So clearly this would put her in danger as well as the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the plot is stopped cold, and the plotters are put to death. And by the way, in the book of Esther, this is only the beginning of the intrigue, plot twist, and exciting action. Her story is just about as thrill-packed as Paul's. you got to read it. So Paul's nephew is a kind of Mordecai to Paul in this Acts passage. This is also not the first time Paul has faced death threats. In Acts chapter 9, shortly after his conversion, in his enthusiasm to spread his new new message, Paul, of course, stirs up trouble. Twice in chapter 9 alone, it's reported that he has to be spirited away to avoid death threats. And once, the place he was taken to is Caesarea. So here again, in today's passage, after creating another little dust-up, Paul eventually ends up in Caesarea again, some 60 miles away from Jerusalem for his own safety. Like I said earlier, Paul is a trouble magnet, but it's all good trouble. Before we move on, I want to point out something else interesting. A biblical rule of thumb is that when something is mentioned three or more times in a book or a chapter or passage, odds are it's really important 
and we should pay special attention. At least three times in this passage, we read about the 40-plus men who took an oath to kill Paul. Clearly, this is a serious threat. Paul's life and probably the lives of those near him are in danger. But I think the really important thing being made here, the point, is that even in the face of serious, real, imminent threats, the Holy Spirit is at work behind the scenes, and there's a mystery nephew about to show up. God's plans are never thwarted. In this situation, 40-plus assassins were stopped by one young nephew who sounded the alarm and raised up 470 armed men. God's plans will not be thwarted. So what can we take away from this passage? A really close study of these uh, verses will reveal a treasure trove of truths. But let me suggest these five for our consideration today. One, resistance is inevitable. Two, God can use anyone. Three, the Lord is near. Four, the Holy Spirit is at work. And five, God's plans will not be thwarted. Let's look at each briefly. First, resistance is inevitable. Our calling, our purpose in Christ is to fulfill the command found in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, 20, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Paul took this command very seriously, just as we should. He was pouring out his life for the gospel. And just as he encountered resistance, we can expect the same. It may even come from those who are supposed to be on our side. The religious leaders of Paul's day should have been his allies. Instead, they were focused on their own power and prestige and saw the gospel as a threat to their way of life. The culture in which we live is not our friend. The gospel in this postmodernist world is radically countercultural. The truths of the Bible are seen as a threat to personal liberty, personal freedom, and personal rights. Even though God's word is powerful and will ultimately bring great positive change to the lives of those who embrace it, we will always get pushback from those we are trying to reach. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Second, God can use anyone. Paul understood this well when he wrote in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our temperaments, our IQ, our interests, our skills, Our abilities, our past, our hopes and dreams. These are all gifts of God. The way he made us. How he has equipped us to complete the good works he has prepared for us to do. Just as with Paul, God can take us as we are, then redeem and retool us to be effective in the kingdom. Through his grace, he smooths our rough edges. In Esther's case, 
This young country girl is raised up and made a queen for such a time as this to save her people. If God can use Paul and Esther, he can use you and me. Third, the Lord is near us. We are not alone. Just before he ascended into heaven, we heard him tell his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That promise is as much for us as it was for them. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses encouraged Joshua, promising, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In Hebrews 13.6, we are promised that we can say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? No matter what we are going through, Jesus is near us. He will never forsake us or leave us alone. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is at work. Just when your enemies are hatching plans to bring you down, a nephew will show up to warn you. When 40 are against you, the Holy Spirit will raise, will have 470 ready to come to your rescue. When we get nervous and shaky about sharing our faith, we can remember that Acts 1-8 promises us that we will be empowered to fulfill the Great Commission and will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. When we feel alone, we can be assured by John fourteen sixty that reminds us, and I will ask the Father, And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. For he lives with you and will be in you. The word translated as advocate means comforter, helper, one who comes alongside, intercessor, one who comes to our aid. We may never have a vision of Jesus or hear the audible words of Jesus Or have Jesus appear in person as Paul did. But we all have unlimited access to the Holy Spirit who is near us, in us, around us. Fifth, God's plans will not be thwarted. Isaiah 54, 17 tells us that no weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Job acknowledged, I know that you, meaning God, can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, even though Paul had moments where he was likely discouraged, he still knew the truth of God's word. The source of his courage was his firm confidence in that truth. We've already seen one reference to this truth in the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what is being inferred is that we are commissioned as agents of his authority. Paul understood this. In John 14, 12, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. 
Resistance is inevitable. God can use anyone. The Lord is near us. The Holy Spirit is at work. And God's plans will not be thwarted. These are five truths we can learn from this passage. But five is a lot. Maybe you can't remember all of them. So if not, here's the one big takeaway. If you take nothing else away from this episode of Paul's story, you must understand this. Tharseo, take courage. Fear not. God is with you. Jesus cares about you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. God has you in his hands. He will never leave you or forsake you. And he is at work in your life. In Philippians 1.6, Paul declares, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Once you embrace Christ, he relentlessly embraces you. As Paul states firmly in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here today, the comforting word of Jesus, Tharseo, take courage, fear not. God is with you now and always. And now that you've heard this message, ask God, what do you need to do with it? How do you need to apply this in your life? And who else around you needs to hear this truth? This week, dwell on these truths and let them soak into your heart and mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mission you have called us to here in Huntington Valley. Give us wisdom and courage as we seek to complete your work in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.